Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you. Good to see everybody today. Um, we have been in a series looking at the parables of the Lord Jesus. Most recently, we've transitioned into a, a part of the parables where we're looking at the judgment parables. So this is the last week of Jesus' life, and he shares a number of parables over the course of those five or six days from the time he enters into um, enters into Jerusalem until he, on his journey toward the cross, where he begins to just lay it all out there on the line, basically takes the gloves off and shares with uh, the Jewish people that, hey, look, I'm the Messiah. You need to look to me for forgiveness. You need to look to me as your Savior or, you know, God's judgment's coming. And so we're going to um, engage with another one of those today. Before we get into that, first of all, I want to just point out our faith promise cards. If you didn't get a chance to pick one of these up, there's some of these back on the table at the back. Many of you did uh, this past week. Um, we had our missions conference last week, thanks to Tom and Janet and all those that helped pull all that together. It was a wonderful time. I believe that the last number I heard was around $37,000, something in that neighborhood was pledged for missions in the coming year. That's on top of what uh, Hebron gives in our budget. And so that's just a wonderful thing. I think we need to tell the Lord thank you um, and give him praise for that. It's been great to get to know all of our missionaries. Um, they've become like close friends. Uh, they've become like family. And so that's just wonderful to be a part of that and have them uh, with us. So uh, you can pick one of these up if you're It's not too late to make a pledge if you'd like to for the coming year. Um, so I want to just give us a little bit of uh, frame of reference for today. I think this will be helpful. I've got a slide for you here. This shows basically a timeline of human history. So uh, the Bible's a little unique in that it teaches that human history is actually headed somewhere, that there's a goal for it, unlike Buddhism or Hinduism, which teaches that time is just cyclical and human history is just nothing new under the sun. Everything's just repeating over and over again. Instead, the Bible teaches that human history began at creation, followed by the fall, and then it continues on until finally the end of time uh, when Jesus will return. And so there's two ages that the Bible teaches of human history. The first of those is the age of the law. Um, this is when God the Father gave Moses the laws of the Old Testament, the uh, Jewish law. And then he raised up for himself a people, Israel, unto himself. And then that carried forward all the way until we see that date there, 70 AD. I'll explain that here in just a moment. But then there's a second time or a second age that begins on this timeline, and it's the age of the Spirit or the church age. That's the age that we live in now. That's the age that we live in today. And so just from a point of reference, what we're going to be talking about today is the event of 70 AD, which will bring to a close the first age of human history. You follow me? All right, so we're, looking at, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25, which are discussing not the end of time, but that are discussing the end of the first age of human history, that 70 AD destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Our text for today comes from Matthew chapter 25. I'm just going to have us read the first four verses of the parable of the ten virgins. This is Matthew chapter 25. These are the opening lines. So I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet as we read from God's word, Matthew 25, verses 1 through 4. Matthew 25, verses 1 through 4. Again, just the opening lines of this parable of the ten virgins. Here we go. Verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. You may be seated. All right. So um, here's kind of the way I want to proceed today. I gave you a little bit of introduction. 
We're going to get a lot more introduction here in a moment. But I want to establish the context before we study the text. So before we get into the parable itself, it's important that we consider, well, what is the material that's going on around Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, where Jesus shares his parable of the ten virgins? What's the material going on? What is Matthew trying to, how does the parable fit into the overall narrative that Matthew is establishing through his gospel? Because these parables, again, were never just told in isolation. They always had some question that was raised, some issue that caused Jesus to want to prompt to offer the parable. The parable was just given as an opportunity to clarify some teaching that he's given or again in some response to a question that was raised. And so I want to establish the context and then we'll look at the actual parable itself here in just a little bit. So Matthew chapter 24 and verse 1 begins the actual context that leads into this um, Matthew 25 parable. So let's take it, let's start back at Matthew 24 and verse 1. Jesus and his disciples, I know I'm talking fast, but again, if you see how many pages I've got, it's crazy. And so um, I really should have, it hit me Friday about noon. Okay, look, you should split this into two sermons. So you're going to get a fire hydrant here this morning. Um, so the context is, again, Matthew 24 and verse 1, Jesus and the disciples, it's the last week of Jesus' life. He's going to be on the cross on Friday morning. This is probably Tuesday afternoon, maybe even Wednesday afternoon. And so Jesus has been giving some teachings in the temple courtyard. And so he and his disciples have made their way out of Jerusalem. They're getting ready to head back toward Bethany for the night to spend the night. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead a couple of days before. Um, he's staying at Lazarus's house. And so they, they walk out of the temple, and the disciples make a comment. They say, Matthew 24 and verse 1, that Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So they're looking around at this beautiful temple complex, and they are remarking about it. Now, I've got a picture for you here. This is a scale model that's actually in the Israel Museum uh, that depicts the first century Herod's temple that Jesus and the disciples were looking at. You can see the different structures there. On the one side, you see the Levitical housing area on the phone. I guess that would be on the southern side of that thing on this end. And then you've got the temple, comp temple itself in the middle. And then you've got the courtyard all around it. And on the far side, you have the temple guard, their house, uh, where, they, where, they, where they were housed at. Um, you can imagine back in the first century that this was an amazing sight to behold. People from all across the Roman Empire, people that were non-Jews, would actually go on vacation to come look at this place. I mean, it was magnificent. It was opulent. It was huge. And so people hadn't seen anything like this before. And so folks wanted to just come and lay eyes on it. And so it's appropriate for the disciples to say things like, wow, this is amazing. Jesus, do you see all these different, different structures uh, here? Isn't it beautiful? And now Jesus says something in response that's quite shocking. Um, Jesus actually says, spoiler, verse 2, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, in other words, I'm not lying to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This massive structure, Jesus just said, is going to be destroyed. What follows in the rest of chapter 24 is not the disciples questioning whether or not Jesus is right. I mean, they, they, Jesus has proven himself that when he says something's going to happen, okay, it's going to happen. So they don't question Jesus, but rather what they end up doing is they start asking him, well, when? When can we expect that to happen? Um, and so that's, that's their, their, the thing that they want to know the most. And so before we get into that, Jesus uh, predicts that the temple's going to be destroyed, and sure enough, it is. In 70 AD, um, not, that long, not that many years later, in 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. The Roman legions uh, laid siege to it, and it's destroyed just as Jesus had depicted. Now, I've got a painting for you here. I shared this a couple of weeks ago. This is a painting by David Roberts, dated 1850. It's oil on canvas. 
I've got, the, I've got the painting down in my office, and for whatever reason, as I'm preparing these sermons, I keep saying to myself, okay, well, it's going to be in the lobby. You can go take a look at it. <laughs> it's not in the lobby. Uh, so if you want to look at it, go down to my office. You can see it up close. Um, but anyhow, I hope maybe one of these weeks somebody will just grab it out of my office and stick it on the wall in the lobby. But uh, so anyhow, this thing's like seven feet tall and about ten feet, my, my painting's not, seven feet tall and ten feet uh, wide. Um, and it's called the destruction of Jerusalem, and it depicts Emperor, Emperor Vespasian's son, Titus, the little guy out there on the little precipice, ordering the troops to go, and they're laying siege to the city of Jerusalem. And this is David Roberts' depiction of that. You can see the city of Jerusalem in the background, all on fire. The city was um, laid siege to in April in 70 AD, about middle of April, 70 AD, and then the city fell in August of that same year. Josephus, who was a first century historian, talks about uh, this siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. He was a historian who was actually there, eyeballs, witnessed all of these events taking place. And Josephus says that there were 1.1 million Jews that were caught up inside, that were killed, um, that had tried to find, find refuge inside of the city walls of Jerusalem from these Roman legions, and, uh, and 97,000 others that were carried off into slavery. Now, why were, they, why were the Romans down there? Why were they um, attacking the Jewish people? Well, because the Jewish people had revolted against their Roman overlords. They had revolted against the Romans um, and kicked them out of Judea in 66 AD. That's referred to in history as the Jewish revolt. So for four years, it had been a great big party in Israel. Romans were gone. For four years, they had been self-governed. Finally, we've got our sovereign nation again, right? We've gotten, we've gotten rid of these, um, these folks. And so <coughs> Rome was not going to allow that to stand. And so because of that, uh, the Romans are now back, and they're there to reclaim their lost territory. Now, the disciples, upon hearing Jesus make this shocking pronouncement about the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem, again, naturally follow that up with the question of when. They're not question. You won't see them one time ask Jesus, are you sure about that? Uh, they, they take him at his word, but what they want to know is when. When can we expect these things to happen? I mean, that's a pretty amazing thing for you to have just said. It's kind of like me saying, hey, look, uh, the White House, or maybe I shouldn't say the White House. Um, I don't know. Some, gr some great big federal government building or whatever was to be destroyed in the next 10 years. I mean, people would be like, whoa, that's kind of crazy that you would think that. And, but that's what Jesus does here. He says that this most magnanimous building that everybody all across the Roman Empire knows about is not going to have one stone left upon another. Not just that it's going to be laid siege to, but it's literally going to be dismantled. And so that's what Jesus says, and sure enough, that's what happens. But the disciples want to know, verse 3, when's this going to happen? As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? In the verses that follow, Jesus spits out sign after sign after sign that they can look for that will tip them off that the, that the uh, temple is about to be destroyed. <coughs> Stuff like, verse 6, that there will be wars and rumors of wars. Stuff like, verse 7, that there will be famines and there will be localized earthquakes. And sure enough, famines definitely happened. We know that that happened. The Apostle Paul was running around the Roman Empire trying to collect up an offering to bring to the Jews, or Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who were suffering under this severe famine uh, in the 60s AD. Um, and then verse 8, but he said, Jesus says, but all these are the beginning of the birth pains. Now, I know what some of us are thinking. We just heard wars, rumors of wars. We just heard earthquakes. We just heard famines. And we've been trained, perhaps because we watched Hal Lindsey or read his book, Late Great Planet Earth, back in the 70s. And so that's kind of 
created an impression on our minds about some of this material that it has to do with the return of Christ. But Jesus isn't talking about some future temple. He's talking about the one that he's sitting there looking at in that very moment. Y'all with me? They just walked out of the temple. And the disciples are talking about the temple that they just looked at. And they're saying, hey, Jesus, do you see all this amazing temple here? And so Jesus has given them some predictions about that that temple. Look again at verse 3. Um, again, before we read this, before we read verse 3, like, what are we talking about here? Um, when, when we are handling one of the correct, one of the things, I've, I mean, the last 17 years, I hopefully I've been doing a good job of teaching you all this, but one of the correct ways to handle God's truth is that we allow the context to determine the meaning. That we don't just go reach in and find a Bible verse and pull it out and go, I think I know what this means. I think I know what they're talking about there. No, we read everything else going on around there. We study it. We want to consider, well, what did the original audience think of what they heard? What did the original author intend to say with these words? And so, again, that's just an appropriate and right way to handle the word of truth. All right? Okay. All right. Just making sure if we need to do some more on that. Um, I had some more stuff here on that, but I think I'm just going to skip over it. All right, verse 3 says that Jesus and his disciples are sitting on the Mount of Olives. I've got a picture for you here. <sighs> this is a picture of the Mount of Olives today. A couple of churches that have been built out there on that hillside. And I've got another picture for you here. It's a little bit further south of the picture that you just saw. And you can see there's actually a um, tombs, uh, a grave. What do you call this thing? Cemetery, thank you. That was a really tough word. Right? There's a cemetery right there in the foreground of that picture, and then down the Kidron Valley you're looking, and then up the other side you can see the foundation wall, or a retaining wall, better word, retaining wall that where the temple used to be, and then you see that little golden dome building, and that's the Dome of the Rock. It's a Muslim holy site. It's a mosque that's built exactly on the spot where the temple that Jesus and the disciples were talking about looking at where the temple used to be. Again, this is the setting that Jesus and the disciples are there. Jesus are sitting on that mountainside, on the Mount, Mount of Olives. They're looking down the Kidron Valley. They're looking up at that temple. And that's the one that they're talking about. Again, not one that's some way off into the future, but the one that they're looking at right there in that very moment. We allow the context to determine the meaning. What's truly remarkable is that only Jesus, not only does Jesus predict the destruction of that temple, but he even gives a time frame. Remember, their first question was, their prevailing question is, When? I mean, you said this is going to happen. We're not questioning that. But when's it going to happen? And so Jesus gives them a whole bunch of signs that they can be looking for that will help them determine the when. But then he also says, hey, look, gang, not only am I going to give you some specific signs to be looking for, but I'm going to give you a window in which this particular day of cataclysm is going to happen. He says it's going to happen, verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation, a generation in Jewish reckoning is 40 years. So Jesus is saying within the next 40 years, the things about which I have spoken will take place. All these th- or this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Um, I've got one more timeline for you here. <coughs> Excuse me. This shows the birth of Jesus in as early as 4 BC. Perhaps uh, you can date it as late as 1 AD or so. Um, and then based on those dates, we would go 33 years of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus, which would put at an earliest date of 29. Sorry, I just got to go there unless you want to hear me cough all morning. Um, This shows the birth of Jesus in as early as 4 BC or maybe as late as 1 AD. And so that would take the 33 years of the Lord Jesus' public ministry. And that would put the words that he speaks here in Matthew 24 and verse 34 around 29 AD. 
right? So that's what the, that's what the timeline's showing, perhaps even as later as 33 AD, depends on where you want to put your dates. Um, and then the final date, the day of destruction, of which we n know was 70 AD. So in Matthew 24, verse 34, Jesus is predicting that within the next 40 years, not one stone will be left upon another, that within the next 40 years, the temple's going to be destroyed, along with the other, all the other things that he's getting ready to tell them about. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Titus began leading the Roman legions in 69 AD from, uh, from Asia Minor through modern-day Turkey, down, heading south toward Jerusalem and into Judea and the siege that happened and the destruction of the nation as a whole. He even puts the divine seal on all this saying, Jesus says, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In other words, what I just said to you, gang, is as good as money in the bank. And then he says, verse 36, but concerning that day and the hour, which he's talking there about specific time frame. Again, you are, he's still responding to the question of when, giving you a whole bunch of signs, things to look for. He says in verse 16, hey, look, the, the abomination that causes desolation that Daniel talked about, even that's going to be a big one. We're not going to get into that today, maybe another day. But uh, he says that's going to be a big one. There's a bunch of signs that they can be looking for. And then he said, hey, look, within the next 40 years, but concerning a specific day and hour, to that I can't give you. I can't speak. He says no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, that's Jesus himself, but the Father only. So Jesus makes a specific prediction about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. He offers a 40-year window in which these, that event's going to take place. But he says, for, as for a specific day and hour, he, I don't have that detail. Only God the Father in heaven has that detail. What follows in the rest of Matthew chapter 24 is Jesus pressing the need to be ready for this coming destruction. For example, he compares the next 40 years of waiting for the destruction of the temple to the days of when Noah was constructing the ark, right? So Noah spent 100 years constructing that big giant boat, and every year you get a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger, and people would come by, right, and they'd give Noah a hard time. Hey, you want to swing by Noah's house today? Give him a hard time, see what kind of progress he's making on that big old boat. I don't know what he's going to need that big old boat for. And so he says, Matthew 24 and verse 38, hey, look, you can compare what the window of 40 years that y'all are about ready to experience to the way Noah experienced the 100 years leading up to the great flood. He says, for as in the days before the flood, when the skeptics were out in force, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, in other words, people were just carrying on with life. Noah's out there building that boat. I don't know what he's doing. Doesn't have anything to do with me. Noah's calling people to repentance, and they weren't interested day after day. They carried on like this, Jesus says, until the day when Noah entered the ark. What's this wet stuff falling from the sky? By that point, the door was shut and it was too late. Still at the end of chapter 24, again, Jesus throughout Matthew chapter 24 is describing this day of destruction. He's describing the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the sacrificial system that the Jewish people had been uh, observing for these thousand, twelve hundred or so years since the time of Moses. And so he's describing the destruction of that temple. He's describing the destruction of Jerusalem. He's been weeping in Matthew chapter 23 over all of this destruction that's on its way. He's been giving parable after parable after parable in the lead up to it. And these final days of his life, trying to convince people, trying to get them to listen, listen, right? 
that, look, there's destruction that's coming. He's taken the gloves off. He's talked about God's love. He's talked about God's goodness. He's talked about God's faithfulness. And the parables that he's given up to this point have been all about God's mercy. And they've been all about God's goodness. And they've been trying to draw people into the heart of God. But now he's in this last couple of days I've got with you. And he's sharing teaching after teaching after teaching. Gloves off, knuckles bare. Hey, folks, God's judgment's coming. Please, please listen. He gives an example of a homeowner here at the end of Matthew chapter 20, uh, 20, Matthew chapter 24, verse 43. A homeowner whose house has been broken into or is going to be broken into. He says, verse 43, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Anybody whose house is going to be broken into wants to know, tell me the day. Tell me the hour. And I'll make sure I'm sitting on the front porch and I stop that from happening. And Jesus is making the point here that just like the homeowner whose house is going to be broken into, but doesn't know when it's going to happen, the same thing when God comes in judgment upon the Jewish people for, for crucifying their Messiah, for rejecting their Messiah. Same thing. And then he tells another parable, a second parable here at the end of first, or chapter 24, about the parable of the faithful and unfaithful servants. One, one's faithful, one is sloppy. The master, Jesus, goes away. And you know the saying, when the cat's away, the mice will play. That's right. Jesus warns his disciples, Matthew 24 and verse 50. Hey, gang, look, I'm getting ready to go on up to heaven. The master's about ready to check out of here. But hey, listen, don't become like that sloppy or ill-prepared servant because, verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour that he does not know. I know y'all would love to know what day and what year it's going to happen. I don't have that information. What I tell you is, one, it's going to happen. I'm going to give you some signs of when it's going to happen, things that you can look for and go, okay, all right, that's drawing really close. We're getting really close to that. And then finally, I'm even going to give you a window, a 40-year window in which you can be looking for this destruction to take place. The point is, I don't know exactly or precisely when. I cannot share that with you. But again, the destruction is going to happen. Your response in the meantime, therefore, is to continue to be faithful. Be like the faithful servant, right? Be watchful, right? Be ready for when uh, this is going to take place. Now skip down to the last verse of our parable for today. I know this is a ton of prep work. I just need to get our heads pointing in the right direction, right? We need to we make sure we're on the same page with Jesus, know what he's talking about here. Because um, remember, the context determines the meaning. Y'all are great Bible students, and everybody said? All right, very good, very good, all right. So Matthew 25, verse 13, this is a concluding statement of the parable that we're about ready to study. Jesus says, verse 13, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour seems to be a common theme, don't you, don't you think? Running through all of this teaching, talking about the destruction of the temple. Nobody knows when that temple is going to be destroyed. Jesus is saying we just need to be ready. All right, with all of that in mind and with all that little background built into our brains, uh, let's take a look at the parable itself for today. Matthew 25 and verse 1. It says, then the kingdom of heaven, y'all doing okay? All right. Well, I, I guess it's a rhetorical question. Uh, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. 
You know, in all of Jesus' parables, he always draws from stories that are real-life stories. This isn't like Aesop's fables when he tells these parables. He's taking real-life scenarios. And so, once again, we have a real-life scenario that Jesus paints here, the day of a wedding procession. So, or the day of a wedding and the procession of that wedding. Back in Jesus' day, when a young couple wanted to get married, um, the groom would gather together his buddies, we call them. Just want to make sure y'all are still with me. All right. So, he gathered together his groomsmen as well as his family. And they would process across town to wherever his bride's home was. And then when they got there, they would have the wedding ceremony typically at her house. Not always, but they would typically have the wedding ceremony at her house. And then they would process back across town to the groom's house. Here's the interesting thing, though. Um, so, I mean, it was no different than you and I having funeral processions. Like, you know, we get in line, we turn our headlights on, and we follow the car from the church or from the funeral home out to the graveside. So we have funeral processions. They had wedding processions that would happen across town. Um, now, these were typically evening events, so processions back and forth across town would take place at night in the dark. So having a lamp, or in some of your um, translations may say that they had a torch, as some translations say, was not only important to be able to see where you're going, but it was also part of the wedding tradition. I mean, people saw a parade of people heading through town with their torch light at 7 o'clock in the evening or 8 o'clock in the evening. Oh, well, a wedding's going on. Maybe people walk out to the front porch of their house and they would just wish the bride or wish the groom well um, and cheer people on as they're walking by. I don't know how that went. Now, while the bride was waiting for the groom, though, she to come to her house um, and get her, retrieve her, the bride would have um, attendants, and we call them today bridesmaids. This was a group of unmarried young ladies. That's why in Jesus' story they are all virgins, because they are unmarried girls. And in Jesus' story there are ten such bridesmaids. Now so far there is nothing in this scenario that Jesus paints that is unusual. I mean, this is just a typical wedding day procession that Jesus is uh, creating here. But all of that is about to change. Verse 2, uh, Jesus says, five of the bridesmaids were foolish and five of them were wise. Now that begs the question of, well, why were some of them wise and why were the others considered foolish? Well, Jesus tells us, verse 3, for when the foolish took their lamps, <clears throat> again, I don't think y'all want to, yeah, that's a, that's a good awkward pause because the option, the other option is no good. All right, verse 3, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. Verse 4, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. In other words, they brought extra oil with them. So the distinguishing factor between those that were considered wise and those that were considered foolish is that the wise brought extra oil and the foolish did not. That's the determining factor between who's wise and who's foolish. Now, this detail may not seem like all that big a deal to us in our 21st century context, but I can assure you that if I'm a first century Jewish person who just read Matthew's gospel, and I just heard that parable taught where there is these gals that show up for a wedding and they didn't bring extra oil, that would have jumped out to me as a glaring example of ill-preparedness. In the first century, getting ready for a wedding feast was a major ordeal. The wedding feast would last through the night. My girls and I, we love to go to Williamsburg. I don't know if you've ever been to Williamsburg, but I encourage you to go there. One of the things you discover while you're in Williamsburg is those folks knew how to party. In fact, when they partied, they would prepare to stay there all, through, all night long. I mean, the party really didn't even get going until 2 o'clock in the morning, and they would be dancing through the night and eating through the night and stand around talking through the night. 
It was an amazing thing that they would do, and they would go all the way till the morning. Well, these folks, same thing, they did that. They would party all through the night into the morning, and even in many cases, these wedding feasts would go on for several days, which means you've got to prepare food for all these folks over the course of several days. Some of them are coming from out of town. You've got to be able to put a place for them to sleep at night. And so all that to say, the groom would not begin his procession across town to retrieve his bride until the preparations for the wedding feast were complete. So the bride knows he's coming, but she doesn't know when he's going to show up. I mean, maybe he'll show up at 7 o'clock. Maybe he'll show up at 8. Maybe he might be as late as 9 o'clock. But again, for some of these bridesmaids to show up at the home of the bride with their lamps lit, their torches lit, but without a ready supply of extra oil would have been awfully presumptuous, and that would have stood out immediately to Jesus' first century audience. I mean, maybe the groom will be by in 10 or 15 minutes. I don't know. But it's, again, awfully presumptuous to think that he's going to be by that soon to not bring any extra oil with you. What's wrong with you? Therefore, anyone listening to Jesus' story, again, would have agreed with his assessment that that was a pretty foolish thing to do. Again, what do you mean you didn't bring extra oil? Of course you bring extra oil. You've got to bring extra oil. What's wrong with them gals? Uh, this past Thursday, one of our men's breakfast group, we had our men's breakfast group, one of our breakfast groups, and uh, we were meeting and talking about this scripture, and one of the guys said, Hey, look, that reminds me of this professor that I had when I was in college. And uh, she would take attendance every, every, at the beginning of each class. And the way that you had to respond when she called out your name, she had to say one of two things. Either you had to say prepared or ill-prepared. <laughs> I don't know that I would have liked that teacher. But anyhow, um, that's what she made you say. That was kind of how, that's how she took attendance. Prepared ill-prepared, right? He said, one time I said ill-prepared, and I, I never said it again. Um, but that's what some of these bridesmaids were. They came ill-prepared. Verse 5, here comes the second and most shocking, perhaps most shocking twist of Jesus' wedding procession story. Look at verse 5. I love these little details. They pop up here in the story. Maybe they don't sound like that big of a deal to us, but again, to a first century audience, wow, that's crazy talk. Verse 5, as the bridegroom was delayed, key word there, delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Now, the shocking detail is not that some of these bridesmaids fell asleep. In fact, both the wise and foolish bridesmaids fall asleep. You'll find out why here in a moment. So there's no critique of the bridesmaids for the fact that they fall asleep while they're waiting for the groom to show up. Nor is the shocking detail that the groom was delayed. What's shocking is how long the groom is delayed. Look at verse 6. It says, but at midnight. Midnight? You came to get your bride at midnight? Really? I mean, you could, have, you could have been there at 7. You could have been there at 8. You kept her family waiting till midnight before you'd show up to pick her up and have the wedding and then begin to march back across town? What are you, just crazy. I mean, I'm sure her dad was beginning to think to himself, well, I was wondering if he was ever going to show up, right? Um, he's like wondering if he had gotten some kind of cold feet or something. But so anyhow, this guy comes showing up at midnight. But again, isn't that the point? Jesus is trying to instruct his original audience through the use of this parable. You don't know the day or the hour when all this destruction is going to come. It may come in year 38. It may happen in year 39. It may happen in the waning hours of year 40. But I've spoken. It's going to happen. I just don't know the day and the hour. So you need to be ready. This calamity will fall so quickly, 
it'll fall so violently that if you're not watching, you probably won't get out of the way of it. And you'll end up getting swept up in it yourself. It'll happen at a time when no one expects. Everybody's going to be eating and drinking and marrying and getting married. Boy, it just seems like a great time in Israel to get married. It just seems like everything in our nation is just all of a sudden blossoming and everything is going forward. And it, it, let's just have parties all the time. Sounds like 66 AD. The Romans are gone. Everybody's having a great time. Jesus says, and then all of a sudden, boom, verse 13. Therefore, what you need to do is watch, for you have neither the day nor the hour. All right. You all okay? All right. That's a lot of information. I know it is. And uh, it's just a lot of information. But uh, so what I've done is I've, get, I've taken 25 minutes of your time today and given myself about five minutes to do some application. Uh, so I'll do my best to make that happen really fast. So what difference does all this make to your life and to mine, right? You say, Gee, Gordon, this is something that happened all those years ago. I mean, you said that the, it was about the destruction of the temple. The temple's been destroyed in 70 AD. Here we are 2,000 years later. Well, how does this apply to my life? What difference does this make to me? It's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. Let me start with a question. My question is, is there anything more that Jesus could have said? Is there anything more that Jesus could have done to convince these folks, these stiff-necked folks, that God's judgment's coming? Is there anything more that he could have possibly presented to them? I mean, in just a couple of days, he's going to literally rise from the dead. And even that wasn't enough to convince them that Jesus is Messiah, their Lord and their Savior. Friends, I don't think there's anything more Jesus could have possibly said or done. You know, every one of us as family members, people that we interact with every day at work, parents out that we see out on the ball field, buddies of ours at school, who despite hearing that Jesus is the way to heaven, are just not interested. I heard a pastor talking this past week about how his church has sent missionaries to Germany. And he said, we struggle over there in Germany to get anybody to talk to us about Jesus, to talk to anybody about Jesus. And he said, it's because the soil is just so hard and their hearts are so hard and people just don't want to hear about it. You bring up the name Jesus and they're just not interested. And that's kind of like these Jewish people back in the first century. Their hearts have grown so hard. You can talk to them till you're blue in the face. They're just not interested. Here's the point. Your job and mine is not to break the soil. Your job and mine is to share the message. I cannot, as much as I want to, and as much as you want to, I cannot change somebody's heart. In the right timing and in the right season, God will turn their heart. My responsibility between now and that moment is to be faithful to proclaim the message. My responsibility between now and that moment is to pray for them. God, soften the soil of their heart. Send some people their way. Send some circumstances, whatever it takes, God, to get their attention, to jerk that knot, to cause them to want to be open to the gospel. God can do that. God will do that. Again, our responsibility, though, is to faithfully proclaim the message. Number two, my last point. 
What difference does this make to your life and to mine? Well, these scriptures reveal that it is God's desire that no one experience his judgment. You see that? Jesus spent the last week of his life, he could have spent the last week of his life talking about all kinds of things and said everywhere he went publicly, he was declaring God's judgment's coming, folks. He wept over Jerusalem. He wept. Peter says, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Listen closely now. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should be led to repentance. That's God's heart. That's what God wants to see. Now, whether or not people respond to that message, you know, I can't change that. I can't change somebody's heart. But again, I got to be faithful to share the message. But again, all of this reveals God's mercy, God's desire to win people into himself. Friends, these parables represent Jesus pleading with these people. He's desperately trying to get folks to listen. He's desperately trying to get folks to respond and embrace him. Jesus's mission was a mission of mercy. Look again at the end of the parable, Matthew 25 and verse 11, the foolish bridesmaids, they went off to town to go find some more oil. Meanwhile, the wedding procession headed back to the groom's house. They got inside. It says the doors were barred shut. I said verse 11. I meant verse 12. Matthew 25 and verse 12. And so the bridesmaids finally, these, the foolish ones, finally make their way to the home of the groom. And when they get there, they bang on the door. They say, Lord, Lord, open the door to us. Noah, open the door to us. Don't you know there's water falling out of the sky here? Don't you see the armies circling around Jerusalem? Open the door to us. And so what does the groom say? He turns them and says, truly I say, I do not know you. Loved one, if you're here today, you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It would be tragedy for you to arrive at heaven's gates, and to hear those words, truly, I do not know you. Some folks will hear those words. If you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that is what awaits you. Jesus is declaring all through his word, hey gang, look, destruction's coming, judgment is coming. It is not my desire that anybody should perish, but rather to receive and accept Jesus and avoid that disaster. One final thought, and then we'll close. Got a picture for you here. This is um, of Hughes Auditorium in, I'm going to start crying. That's terrible. <laughs> it's just, this, is, this is a special place in my heart and in my life. I spent a lot of time there as a college student, and uh, about a year ago now, there was a tremendous revival that took place on the college, at the campus at Asbury College or Asbury University. And this is a picture of that, um, of that revival services that were taking place. Went for, I don't know, two weeks or something like that. Just never stopped all through the night. People coming to the Lord, people coming from all across the world showed up in, the, uh, at, in Wilmore, Kentucky and got on their knees in Hughes Auditorium and just found Jesus. Um, you know... We long for revival. Oh, 
oh God, I long. Part of what, part of what kept me weeping and praying as I, this was going on and just watching these videos and hearing testimonies of people when this was happening a year ago. Part of what um, kept me weeping and praying was, I'm like, God, you can change the mass number of hearts of people. I, you know how rocky and hard the soil of people's hearts are all across this land. And God, you have the ability through your Holy Spirit to, to turn those hearts and to change those hearts. But what does God always say about revival? He says it starts with you and it starts with me. And that's really what's happening there. That is a group of people who are getting on their face before God and saying, Lord, you know how desperately our land needs healing. And so, God, you start with me right here. You know, we've got three folks heading to South Africa this summer. I'm excited about that. Maybe God's put it on your heart to say yes to him. Maybe, you're need, maybe you need to go to South Africa this summer. Maybe you need to get in there and help out with know, any, any one of our other missionaries in the coming year. Maybe you need to head to Romania. But again, revival that we want to see, the changes that we want to see in culture, the changes we want to see in the world, friends, it starts with you and I saying yes to God. And then, Lord, I'll leave it up to you to figure out the finances. I'll leave it up to you to figure out all the logistics. I'll leave it up to you for my safety. But, God, I'm just here to say yes. Because I want to see something like that happen in my community, in my nation, in my family. You say yes to God. And watch, watch as God works. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, we thank you so much for speaking to us today. We thank you for um, your blessed warnings. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy, which is clearly on display in these chapters. Lord Jesus, we also thank you for the call that you have set before each of us, that there's work that each of us needs to do that revival may take place. Lord, we want to see revival take place in our schools. We want to see revival take place in our homes, in our workplace. Again, Lord, it starts with us saying yes to you. Lord, whatever that call is that you've placed on our heart, Rather than rationalize with it, may we just simply say, yes, yes, Lord, whatever you're asking, yes. And I'll leave it up to you to work out the details. Lord, as we come around this table today, we're reminded of your broken body and of your shed blood. Thank you, Jesus, for your great love for us. Thank, for, thank you, Lord, for your willingness to come, sacrifice, suffer, die on our behalf that we might be able to escape God's judgment, that we might be able to experience the love of God, unconditional. Lord, we just give you this space this morning. Holy Spirit, stir and work in our hearts. Speak to us, we pray. In Christ's holy name, amen.